Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed that um, you told me we could record at 7.20 and I uh, immediately assumed Eastern Standard Time and <laughs> yet you're coming here from California, so. Yes, the sun hasn't set here. Mm -hmm. Oh, it must be nice. I always, uh, it's getting to that time of year now where I start thinking about like the days getting shorter. And I always find that extremely bleak. Do you? I've, there's something about the sun having set at five or six that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. It feels like I don't have to do anything anymore in the same way. Oh, no. It's like, especially in like November, that feeling of um, doom that sets in. It's like <laughs> you step outside at 530 and it's dark and I just feel like that's kind of like the twilight of my life. Mm. For me, it feels like permission to be more with myself than with the things that are constantly occurring outdoors. Permission to go to sleep? <laughs> in a way. Permission mm -hmm. to be in. Mm -hmm. Um, What else is new? Your pendant is new. I've not really seen this thing. Oh, I wear this all the time. This is just uh, Jesus and his mom. Oh, I don't I, uh, see the exact details and the features of it, but it looks mm -hmm. beautiful. Think, oh, thank you. I think it's a fairly standard icon. Um, I'm very devoted to Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Uh, if you, I'm not sure if you've seen that particular icon. I don't think I have. I'll look it up now. It's a Byzantine uh, in origin, or I think it's, it, it was made sometime in like modern day Greece, um, but somehow it made its way to Rome and it was taken up by the Redemptorist order. Um, as far as like the symbolism of it though, it like goes back to a tradition that when he was a child, um, Jesus had like a nightmare where he foresaw his own torture and crucifixion. And, um, so he naturally, like a child does, goes running to his mom for comfort. And of course she can't tell him, no, you know, it's just a bad dream because she also implicitly understands that it's all real and it's all going to happen to him. And so rather than consoling the child, she kind of like offers him out as a sacrifice to us. And so the icon, Our Lady of Perpetual Help, it kind of like shows her like stone-faced, like just like holding out the child like sacrificially. And he ha he's missing a sandal in the icon because, um, because like the notion is as he's running to his mother, he lost one of his shoes. 
and then there are angels on either side of her, like holding the instruments of his torture. So, what aspect of this makes you feel particularly devoted to her? Um, I've just always been attracted to the symbolism of that, like the kind of like subversion of it that it feels like so radical and like disturbing and um i think that it's just like so offensive in a way that i think it really lays bare like the um the spiritual essence of the matter that she gives up her son yeah, that like this like child is like having a nightmare about like his eventual torture and execution and you know all she can do is tell him that it's all true and that this kind of like premonition of trauma is uh his destiny and then to extend him as an offering to us like it's um so counterintuitive I think and I think it appeals to a deeper like I don't. I can't even say it's like a deeper literary sentiment. It's like a such a subversion of like natural ethics, but it's also like the fulfillment of it because it is like self-sacrificial and based on like uh, this love that's so extreme that it endures like immense pain and trauma and agony. And um, have you had premonitions? Um, I don't think so. At least I don't think they've uh, come to bear. So. <laughs> Why have you? I would say so. Mm -hmm. Do you care to talk about them? Yes, of course. There have been the ones that are... There have been certain ones that have been impossible to explain that have delighted me for for many years and confused me. One of them was that when I was 16 or so, I think, I one night wrote a poem. It was quite short. And I had an urge to name it Active Greeting for Naima. And this was strange to me because I did not know anybody called Naima. And I remember being annoyed with it, that it seemed frivolous to title a poem this way something that made no sense and did not correspond to the, to the text. And then the next day I received an email from this friend of mine. Um, he's, uh, I've known him for many years and we have been exchanging letters all throughout those years. And he told me that he had recently met a woman and he was about to marry her and she was called Naima. Mm -hmm. And it was... At the, mo at the time, I took it in stride, but I think some weeks later, it occurred to me again. And I was surprised by it in the same way that I am surprised by things that... Like, I have seen something very beautiful and not thought of it as much as it deserves up until a moment of emptiness, and then it comes back to me. Is, uh, is Naima, like, a common or, like, known Turkish name, or is that no. just one you, like, made up whole cloth? Not at all. It's not a Turkish name. I think it oh, may wow. be. She was not Turkish either. I think she was Moroccan. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah, it's not like uh, it's not like you had a premonition about Elizabeth or Sarah. You really uh, dug deep for that one. Yes, it was very particular. Well, Certain can't argue with that. It's definitely uh, <laughs> serendipitous, if not more. But yes. 
Yeah, I, I, I can't say that I've ever had anything like that that really stands out to me. Well, I imagine that I have. I imagine there have been times that I'm just forgetting. Um, hold on, just one second. Hey, Alex, what's up? Oh, hey, sorry, I didn't mean to. I'm uh, recording a podcast right now. So, um, shit, let me think. I feel like there have been very serendipitous events that happened, um, but I'm drawing a blank on them, so they couldn't have been that important. It was serendipitous how we met. Mm-hmm. That's true, but you also seem to be very outgoing with uh, <laughs> just like uh, cold approaching people in public. So this is true. So I imagine you you know you yield connections one way or another. I had a friend that um he got really into spontaneous divination and was convinced that um god was sending him messages by these kind of um regular events in his life and just like uh you know seemingly innocuous symbols and at the time i humored it i was more spiritual at the time than i was religious and now i would say i'm the opposite or at least I aspire to be spiritual. I don't know how uh, it, how much that actually panned out, but um, I we subsequently I re- realized that those were the birth pangs of schizophrenia, and um, yeah, unfortunately it ended in tragedy. But so I'm also like a little bit wary of like kind of like disembodied uh, spiritual like prophecy like that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel that there is a certain degree of... I have not explained it to myself perfectly. I doubt I ever will. But there is a sense of guidance in the way that I choose who to speak to if I am choosing. Of course, if someone speaks to me, I will receive and I will attempt to do so um, Mm. with as much good faith as possible. But when I am speaking... There is a sense that discerns one from the other, even if the question that I would pose is the same, even if I am attracted to a certain certain thing, an emblem in the physical world that I can explain, still I will always prefer one person over the other. Mm-hmm. And this is probably one of those things that one could explain also with physical means. I'm not sure how I could ever explain the situation with Naima, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like you have a strong intuition. I would um, like to know what intuition is. Um, I feel like it's when you know, but you can't exactly explain why. Or maybe you can. I don't know. That's probably an imprecise definition, but but that's kind of how I conceive of it. It's just like uh, a second nature. Um, it's like a second nature for sensing the essence of something. Where do you feel the directives of your intuition in your body? Where do they manifest? Oh, I don't know. I don't know how much I relate to that or not. Um, I think it's like a classically feminine quality. 
Um, but I, I certainly would have a hard time locating it within, um, within my body, but. Mm-hmm. I will always feel it in my body, which is mm-hmm. why I am curious about the connection between those, those locations and my mind. Hmm. How, mechanistically, what I perceive and how that perception is processed so, so as to create this response in those particular places. Such as what? The places or the mm-hmm. response. The places are, more recently, my throat will tense and for a much longer time my breast bone right between my breasts there is a squeezing mm-hmm. I mean now that you say it I kind of feel like uh, just like a kind of empathetic like uh, twinge <laughs> yes. and... but that twinge I think that's just the power of suggestion possibly um I was uh, browsing some of your writings before, and uh, I thought maybe you could uh, elaborate on one of your choice. I'd Um, like to. The ones that I had in mind... Okay, pick one of the following. Uh, Love, music, desire, freedom, or... Morality, or uh, Turkish language. Hmm. Which of those? Which of those do you have the most interest in? I realize I'm digging up like a two-year-old writing, so I don't even know how much your perspective has changed. But it's two to four years old, actually. These things, but I'm oh, very wow. happy to talk about them. Okay. Um, I'd say love is the one I could speak about with the most. I mm-hmm. identify. I think most of those things that I am saying in this essay. And okay. also, I feel like the things that I said then, I'm relearning every mm-hmm. time. All right, well, for the sake of the audience, uh, allow me to read from your essay, or if you would prefer to pull it up on your own. I've and... pulled it up. Okay, well, would you prefer to read it, or should I? Shall I read the entire essay, or shall I take uh, bits you of can. it out this is a, a slow burning podcast but feel free to abridge it and uh, yeah yeah try uh, you know give me the most important points okay well the essay begins by referring to a previous part of a four part series on the self and society and the previous part is about desire and in that essay, I recall that I spoke about this sensation, which we have now discussed as intuition, but at the time it just felt like want. Like I was pointed towards certain things in the world that I felt I simply should interact with. It was not even, it was not even a should, it was not a duty, it was not a compulsion, it was that I really really wanted to speak to them. This was people, but not necessarily. Sometimes I would go into the bushes and the reeds and the weeds and into the sea, and it would feel almost exactly the same. 
and there would be distinct feelings. And so I felt like I was satisfying that feeling when I chose either to speak to others or to be in nature. And mm-hmm. those were the two camps into which they really split the feelings. This is altered now, but following from that view, this essay, Love, I think what I am doing here is I am setting up a framework in which I do not necessarily have to obey that desire. And I begin by describing what happens if I don't don't obey it or do obey it. So I'm saying, when listened to, this want becomes a wild source of life that consumes most other concerns, making it painful or uncomfortable to ignore any slight impulse. Suddenly, all acts gain unbearable value, and the body opens further and further, seeing possibilities in everything, which creates expectations that go unfulfilled and bruise it to reluctance. This generates listlessness that causes fear, makes one wonder whether one is now unable to obey desire, or, worse, devoid of it, whether one's pursuits are valuable or not, whether one wastes time. And so, I suppose this explains itself perfectly, but what I'm really saying is, if I become more and more sensitive to those things around me that make me experience that curiosity and direction towards them, then it feels like, in response, more and more of the world draws me, and I simply cannot address it all at once. And that turns on to me and makes me feel like I am incapable of interacting with the world to the degree of purity and precision that I wish, and that, in turn, makes me desire it less. That is the problem that I am beginning this essay with. Mm. And I resolve it, so to speak, by suggesting, beside want is indifference. The tendency to ascribe absolute value to large and fabulous things wanes as one finds how little this is. Regardless of whether a person has lived or not, they will die and forget their life. They will forget their thoughts and reactions, and every new experience will be something relearned. I discover this in life, but it seems I already knew. Perhaps it would make no difference if I had not learned it at all. And this is the most freeing thing in the world. I do not have to live. It is no more valuable for me to look out than to stay blind, to fulfill or spoil desire, to be unhappy or blandly discontent. I can die a thousand deaths and never choose to revive again. I can be totally dull to possibilities. I am not obliged to open. Instead, entirely whole, belonging only to myself, I make a free and strong choice to live. I make the free choice to feel. Not because it is valuable, but because I want to. Because I know this desire and it transforms me. To live without compulsion and only with want. To listen to my body quickening. Only this bears love. And also this explains itself, but it's something that I always learn. It's something that now is again my primary problem where I am discerning 
what is me in these things that I feel? And what is my receptiveness and my sensation of the world around me, which beckons me? And it seems like the me exists in the will to respond to it or not. That I am not in some cosmic way supposed to respond to it. Rather, I can choose. And when I do choose, I am happier. I am more in life. And that seems like a good, with a capital G, to me. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in some sense, uh, responding to it, and maybe this is a pedantic point, but um, responding is inevitable, right? Res like you receive a stimulus and choosing not to act in strict accordance with what your intuition dictates is a type of response to it. It's just a less intuitive response, you might say. Um, Certainly. Perhaps so. I should say doing exactly as that intuition dictates. Mm -hmm. I do not have to, but when I do so, things turn out quite beautifully. And I come across them in such a sequence, in such settings, that they are like magic and that sense of magic in life is delightful it's wonderful and i wish for it i wish to I, be with it i think that this is a, a subtle distinction that i like to emphasize with regards to value theory that um phenomenological experience like it really only tells you that you experience the thing that you do. It doesn't uh, implicitly suggest any normative from uh, conclusion from that. And so I'm always, uh, I always think that people are jumping the gun if they say like, you know, for example, like we intuitively do value pleasure, therefore we should, therefore we should pursue pleasure. I think that that, that experience only tells you how you experience it and like i said like reacting to that experience is going to be inevitable but um i agree and it it, the, the experience itself doesn't dictate the reaction i think that that has to be deduced or it has to be known by other means i agree i think this essay is my attempt to know it by other means mm-hmm and I also think that maybe this essay speaks to something that we've talked about in different terms, which is just like the uh, the beauty of like living intention and in to embrace that and live in a state of suspended animation and uh, to purposefully not gratify the senses in order to allow that um, positively charged state of tension to persist and to maintain all of the qualities which d distinguish it. Yes, I recall I told you that I resolve all tensions or attempt to. But, mm -hmm. but it sounds like here you're suggesting that, I mean, it seems to imply that by not acting on your intuition or not strictly uh, following its, um, by not strictly following the desire, you are kind of uh, leaning into the tension, or am I misreading that? I think what I'm setting up here is I am saying what you say about it is 
it is interesting, pleasurable, and lively to follow the intuition, to follow the desire, but that doesn't mean it is not in that is not implied that I should follow it, and yet I wish to always choose to, or choose to as much as possible, because it is lively and wonderful and delightful. Mm-hmm. So I could keep it in a state of tension, I am saying. Nothing tells me to not do so. But I, because I am me, wish to resolve it as much as my body allows me and my mind allows me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, the more that I uh, examine this, the more that I study it, I feel like it definitely brushes shoulders with a lot of the concerns that are paramount to me. This uh, second paragraph like, uh, definitely touches on uh, like some very like, uh, like nihilistic uh, strands of thought. I, not that that's necessarily your conclusion, but like, I feel like it at least like, uh, networks with nihilism, you know, it, it shakes hands with nihilism in the sense that there's like this diatribe about like the, um, impermanence of experience and memory. And, um, I think that it speaks as well to like the actualization of desire as a kind of like force of annihilation of oneself um or am i misunderstanding that well i think the self hmm, this is difficult to address because there are certain words that i have used differently then and that i use now and they describe certain things that certainly have happened, but it is hard to describe them without first describing the words that I will use. I think that here what I am saying is referring to physical death, that my body will at some point die, and everything that I have felt will, with this death, also cease to matter, because they can only matter to me, and I will no longer be here. And so what I'm saying is, there is no cosmic need for me to have obeyed this intuition, to have fulfilled that desire, to have lived more than I will end up living. There is ultimately no scale on which I will be measured. But that with this life that is given to me, I might as well live as much as possible. In this sense, living as much as possible means being as close to that directive that comes from within me as possible. Because it seems like by fulfilling it, I become closer and closer to a number of things inside me that I could term my essence almost like vectors of quality. Like there are many different disparate vectors that slowly are reduced in number as things happen to me and I respond to them and they are no longer followed. And so in a sort of feedback are made smaller and smaller and 
affect me less and affect those directives less up until I am guided only by the few nodules that I can term the basis of myself. That is what this paragraph is getting at. Mm -hmm. Thank you for clarifying. I don't have much to add to that. (laughs) Um, But the transition to love is interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I am equating it to a feeling of passing through and being with everything. So I say, once one knows this equality of possibilities, he exists together with what eludes him. People, suns, stones, trees, objects of desire. He is able to rise from a sweet, nomadic sleep to ask of anyone anything he needs. Nothing separates him from his surroundings, and so he thinks nothing of new intimacy. To fall into living is natural, to fall out inevitable. He has space beyond and firmer than himself, a bodiless, fibrous sort of beauty, an awareness of beauty devoid of fear. This state cannot be lost or corrupted. It knows its own swaying with time, as all things know stillness and regression. This thickens desire into roots and lichen that store a fair white sun, moving long grays in the body, which will never collapse or go mute its mouth open, its hands half-raised, waiting for creation. This image I can see, and I know what I meant with it, but I would not describe it in the same way now. Mm-hmm. What I am trying to say, as I would put it now, is that by agreeing to be together with the directive, to do as it says, but not elevating it above other things that might influence my decisions. I make the steepness of interaction less steep. I become more able to go without hesitation and without anxiety to the thing that has drawn me and so it is like reducing the space between perception and action knowing more and more precisely what it is that I should do or that I am asked to do by myself and then doing it with greater skill greater purity greater sincerity each time and greater sincerity not in the sense that I um initially somehow more corrupt in my feeling towards it, but rather that there are fewer other feelings like fear, like reluctance, like defensiveness that would occlude what is fundamentally curiosity, just curiosity and attraction. And I am saying that if I move like that purely on the basis of this pure attraction, then I will feel like I am together with everything always. And that will augment that sense of not having to do very much to simply fall into an interaction with something that is interesting to me, that makes me feel. 
to feel it inside me as I feel me inside me. And that this is a precursor to and part of the experience of love. Mm-hmm. Which is what if, the final paragraph says. Go on, please. I'm curious. If, uh, I may digress um, just to speak more broadly. Um, like, about at what age was it that you first uh, began to feel like this kind of like spiritual like desire intuition which is like very corporeally rooted that you've been talking about this whole time like is this a lifelong phenomenon or did it it it, to become awake to it um at a discrete time i would say it is lifelong and i would say that i wouldn't i didn't realize that it was something that was that needed to be described or that was not felt by others up until I came to America. Mm-hmm. I think before I came, I saw it as much more natural, um, much more universal, that one would feel things and do according to that feeling, that it was the, the fundamental and the correct thing, and that everyone must be wanting to do it as well partly because people showed much more natural interest towards speaking to me um, in return when I was back home, or at least, if not more in magnitude, then more quickly and obviously they were receptive to it and to different dimensions of it than people have been here. Um, Mm -hmm. The earliest... So it has always been there. Distinct feelings. I remember being 10 and being in southeast of Turkey and looking out at this wall of mountains where I knew people were living and feeling my what I would now say is my heart squeeze become tight and narrow and dark like a stab wound I felt like it was inward curved and that it was dark in color or dark in sensation it felt uncomfortable, and I did not interpret it. Now I interpret it much more. At the time, it was just a sensation, and I did not see it as um, as distinct from any other sensation that people always speak about having. Hmm. Uh, how would you characterize your childhood, like in broad strokes? What would you say is like your defining experience? There were many. I I had a very free childhood, I would say. I um, I lived in Ankara, which is not a place where people expect very much from each other in terms of doing things. And much more of a person's life is embedded in their being. So I was certain things. My personality was a way, and people recognized it, and acted towards me accordingly and so I felt that without performing anything or performing towards anything I could still do as I pleased because whatever I did would be received following those things about me those qualities that were ineffable but also that would never go away so there was a kind of feeling of 
having an eternal right to everything that I did because they would come from me, those things I did, and thus be accepted by those around me because they knew what I was. And that was so good. I didn't feel like I'd justify myself to anybody but my parents, and my parents only because they they were my guardians, and I could only do insofar as they allowed me. Although, of course, I often thought of and sometimes did go beyond those restrictions um, insofar as I didn't feel it was a deep betrayal of them and that I, again, had a right to because it was good and natural. Hmm. Yeah, for me, uh, I don't know. I feel like my childhood is like the least interesting thing to talk about out of my background. That's kind of why I asked you because it's like, I mean, and maybe it's because things were generally pretty idyllic. I mean, I also perceive such a radical change in the person that I was then to how I am now. I was very withdrawn and um, indifferent and um, I, I would say like broadly like socially indifferent and so... Um, I feel like I struggle to relate to my past self. That notwithstanding, I mean, my mom always uh, put in a lot of effort to uh, give us good times and experiences and memories that would last. I just, uh, I don't really see how any of that carries over into my present state of being. Uh, whatever continuity is there is a little obscure to me. Mm. I feel like I can very clearly match things that I used to do and used to be with things that I am and do. Like, the continuity is not only certainly there, but it's very well documented because I've been writing my whole life. And because those experiences that defined me were in a kind of sequence, a braid, rather. And I was very aware while that braid was being formed. And so if you asked me what was happening in my life at basically any year and month past 2013, I could tell you how I felt and what was happening and I could connect it to the month past just because I was leaving, leading a very examined life because there was not too much around me. I didn't have to do anything. I was just in middle school, then in high school in a city where unlike New York, nothing happens really unless you seek it, and I sought it according to my own fancy and found it as it came to me, and then had to sit with the consequences of that finding for months sometimes, feeling it to its fullest before the next thing came. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on Ankara and uh, your kind of uh, distinct impression of it? If I were in Ankara now, I would probably be able to tell you in a way that is closer to the truth of it, the full truth of it. As I recall it now, it is a place where there is a certain resignation, almost. I toyed with the word contentment, but that is not so, because it's not necessarily happy. But there's a kind of 
absolute acceptance that certain things are, and not in terms of their absolute nature. Like, in my life, this is the thing that is. I may desire something other than it, but my desire will not necessarily fall way outside of the realm of possibilities that is already mine. That is how people in Ankara felt to me. Like, they may want something more than what they have, but if they do not get it, it will not be a disappointment of the character. It will not be something other than what they expect. Mm -hmm. And in this kind of human landscape, it was, it was very good to talk to people because all of their feelings were right up here. They, like, I, I would have to go maybe two or three sentences, if that, before they told me something completely honest. And they would always show appreciation of me that I had asked and listened, or guidance towards me as they saw me. And this was fantastic, I think, because it allowed me to see any kind of rejection of my my curiosity as um, as a failing of the other person in a way. I became very bold and very much at ease with myself and felt that the only restriction to my ability to interact with others was in myself, a lack of boldness in me or a lack of um, eloquence in me. And so I faulted myself only in, <laughs> in my inability to express myself as purely and beautifully as I would like to, and not in the fundamental fact that I was speaking to this person they might not necessarily want to be spoken to. Um, and that Yeah, they'll just have to deal with it. Yeah, that's how I was. That's how everybody in Ankara was. That's not how most Turks are. It's also, like, normal. <laughs> like, I feel like that's how everyone should be. Like... It's like, (laughs) just open yourself up. Like, it doesn't have to be pleasant. It's just, uh, you know, it's just a better disposition to face the world than... I I don't know what it is, but I feel like, in my experience, Americans are often very closed. And um, I feel like it's kind of, like, counter to the stereotype. But, like, there is a certain, like, reserved nature or, like, standoffishness or, like, wariness of strangers and experience among americans um which i tend to be a little bit jaded by but i think it's an extension of a wariness towards friends too Mm -hmm. it is i i want to preface this by saying that i no longer really see myself as very much distinct from americans like i don't look at the world around me and go, oh, all of these are Americans, and this is why they are that way, because I have I have been working within this paradigm for, for, for two years now, more than two years, of, of expressing myself in ways that the people around me understand. And I feel, in many ways, that California is my home, and that I can refer back to it as my home when people ask me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I feel that what is happening a lot is that in friendships here or in any relationship there is this principal sense of functionality that should never be disturbed 
like, this is my, this is my TA. I can only speak to my TA within this, along this principal axis. And we may diverge a little bit, but only those divergences are permitted that would not interfere with that principal axis. Or this is my friend Nicholas. He and I will speak about, well, you and I maybe are not the, ex the, the, the perfect example, um, because you do not necessarily, you are not the, the, the archetypal example of this in my mind, but me and a classmate will probably not engage in any kind of discussion or intimacy, and that doesn't have to be physical, like an emotional intimacy that would somehow complicate our day-to-day -day interactions, which are necessarily casual in a particular way. Um, and that, that functionality, it doesn't exist back home in, that, in this way. I don't recall it existing in that way. I speak to any one of my classmates and it feels so honest. I can tell them exactly how I feel. Um, and it feels like I, my character, comes before anything that I do to them. And this also, for example, manifests in transgressions. Like if I, if I do something that my friend doesn't like, they are not want to leave me back home. Like I cannot imagine really someone leaving me as a friend, no longer being in contact with me unless I do something that is particularly that somehow violates the principles of our friendship, um, that is particularly pernicious. But here, I feel like the bonds of personal liking are so weak compared to the bonds of contract that if I were to um, say things or behave in a way that is slightly divergent from it even, the relationship would be strained. I can think of so many small examples, but it feels like anything that is not easy or comfortable in a way that is implicitly agreed upon within the first few interactions with Americans becomes not good. I don't know how uh, related this is, but uh, on a previous episode with Nightmare Vision, I spoke about uh, I think we agreed that um, the American sensibility is very averse to like any kind of teleological standard for people to behave by. That there's just like uh, this kind of instinctive aversion to like you're you are a certain person, you are born a certain way, you have certain attributes, and that imposes like certain duties and responsibilities on you, which I think in most of the world is kind of like uh, pretty foundational for ethics but to our sensibility it's kind of uh, foreign I don't know how that uh, necessarily informs or contradicts the um, what you're speaking of which is almost as though there's if not like a script then like a rubric that you follow according to your relationship with a given person and you find that the norm is to work within that rubric and that deviations are less tolerated and i wonder if that has anything to do with uh lack of like a kind of strong like teleological 
ethic. That makes sense. Because if what you are is what you do, which it feels like it is in America, um, how you do and what you do, then you would be expected to adhere to a particular set of that doing um, with each person that you exist for. Whereas if what you are is what you are, as it feels like it is back home, like I am certainly Lara, who is a certain way to all of the people who know me and they do not expect me to deviate from it largely and I don't feel that anybody really does. I can't really come up with anybody from back home that I would tell you they are entirely different from how I know their character. That looking at people and seeing their character, I think, makes Turks pretty comfortable with with others because it's like, you are not going to change beyond what I have seen of you now. My feelings towards you may change. Um, you may do things for me that may alter my view of you, but you as a person, after I have interacted with you for a little bit, I, or even like from the first impression, I don't expect you to be any different. No matter how you act, you are that. And because you are that, you'll probably act within my model anyway, I think is a kind of um, bold and safe way that the people that I remember being close to saw the world and how I saw the world and see the world still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, it's good to know about Ankara. That's always been kind of a mystery for me. I know so many people that have been to Istanbul and I've heard so many impressions of that, but um, Ankara is like a very obscure part of the world for me. It's something that my only... Uh, real impression of it was that one of my professors told me she also is from there and she said that um her childhood memories were formed uh there was a dancing bear that would go around and it was like banned like at some point so i guess they don't have them anymore but she said when she was a little girl that someone would take out around like a, a bear and he would dance and i'm sure he was like drugged up and but um that just seems like uh it's extremely upsetting yeah. Very 19th century. My father also mentioned it, but I've never seen it. I think it was mm. in the 70s, yeah. um, which was a strange time in Turkey, and then stopped. Um, mm -hmm. Although I suppose all times are, are strange times in Turkey, but I think the 70s were a particularly funky time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose uh, that's one way to transition to... Uh, Another article I wanted to discuss. Where is it? Ch -ch -ch. Um, on the Turkish language. Uh, would you care to speak about that? Yes, I should pull it up and see what I thought about it then. Mm -hmm. I've... It's like, it, it, Turkish is also like as a language, like kind of a riddle for me in that um, I feel like I have like no really strong grasp on like the phonetics of it like i can like pick up on like the general sound of like arabic or chinese um or most foreign languages i have a lot of exposure to but even working uh for a turkish madrasa for a season i feel like i never really got the hang of 
the language, not just in the sense of speaking it, but in terms of even real, like getting a feel for it. Um, so how do you characterize Turkish in general? Hmm. I have spent a summer now translating Turkish poetry into English. And so my feel about it, feelings about it and feel for it have, I think, altered in the sense that I do not really feel the difference anymore as clearly. But when I wrote this essay, I was, I mean, I was in Turkey and I, I wrote a lot in English and spoke all the time in Turkish. And so I had a better idea then. And I say that there is no better language to write in than English if you'd like to be conceptual. No better structure to use for distant intimations. I've always had a little difficulty doing that in Turkish. I feel that Turkish is larger and more fragile heavy and volatile. So what I'm trying to say here is, and now I remember what I mean, when you're speaking in English, you can be at many different grades of distance from the subject matter. I could talk to you about dying, and I could scaffold it such that I only touch on the most abstract of things, still say what I, still say something I mean, but never have to interact intimately with death itself. Whereas in Turkish it feels like that scaffolding is close to impossible to set up. The, the language is such that I always really have to make a statement, and when I am not saying anything really, when the flesh of what I am saying is less than the the half-substance surrounding it. It is so obvious. And so Turkish academia and Turkish academic writing actually can be even ridiculous at times. Because a lot of English academic writing is also ridiculous. Like, it's fluffed up and what you want to say is spread out and made less and less. It's, it's diluted. When you try to dilute in Turkish in the same way, I feel like it is more obvious that what you're doing harder to hide what you're doing mm -hmm. um oh i think like english is like uniquely bad for um like really precise analytical writing um, it, um <laughs> i don't i think that it, it it is like rife with and prone to obscurantism and just kind of uh I don't know exactly why, but like, I feel like it makes it easy to conflate terms and to lead down like very like wrong and like what would in other terms in other languages be like self-evidently dumb trains of thought. Like, I feel like Anglo philosophy is just like rife with them. <laughs> yes. About that, I agree. I think you have more degrees of freedom in expressing what you want. And then once you, once you take too many divergent turns, like each, 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 it's like each node, you could go in many different ways, but once you go obliquely enough times, you've completely, completely deviated from the axis that you wanted to follow. Whereas in Turkish, you have only so many ways to say what you want. So if you're going to say something else, you're, you, you'll be saying something else. Um, 
and that that sense of austerity i think is a big part of it and so turkish poetry is actually um it's it's really my favorite poetry just because when you have so such a severe language in a way you you are really going to say something if you want to express an emotion you have the only choice is to essentialize it if you want to write a good turkish poem you are saying what you want to say concisely it is like the most dense seed of something touching or beautiful and it at the same time references so much around it because it has been used in certain ways so often that it comes out of a tradition of feeling and much less intellectualizing mm-hmm. well as far as uh english literature i think that english thrives in poetry and in like explicitly creative literature for the same reasons that it fails in philosophy in that like the kind of figurative register um thrives on having that obscurity and imprecision and being like malleable and adaptable and open to interpretation i think that tends to make really good literature um but it's hard for me to assess the personality of english because it is just like the the taste of water to me it's like the background noise um i feel like well i'm uh my background is in three languages none of which are i think particularly known for word economy english italian and farsi and i think that the uh the personality of italian is like very like um natural and jocular and like self-assured and like unself-conscious i feel like a lot of like the stereotypes about northern and mediterranean europe are like very um reductive and kind of misleading but i feel like that is like the essence of italian and as far as farsi i mean i think it's just like very petty and passive and kind of a feat and kind of aligns with the personality traits that i observe from iranian people so it's like uh mysterious and poetic from a distance but petty and superficial up close <laughs> i think turkish if i were to say would be obstinate mm-hmm. and loud in character and deep in mm-hmm. sensation um and it has it has bright colors to me like when i say something in turkish it feels like i am opening myself and opening my mouth wider and wider and like the things that i am saying are broader strokes um and said with more joy there is less force and joy that i can express when i speak in english and more um more 
more twinkling delight or cautious amusement or just like serene serene contentment gladness um good faith is a very english concept faith is very english whereas things as they are feels much more turkish to me hmm i feel like at a glance like um like you characterize it as like very authoritative like that the word has like a certain gravity um and that can be very grand and magnificent or it can be very like subtle and soft-spoken but nonetheless that kind of uh authority that sense of authority is like very um ubiquitous yes. in turkish whereas whereas i feel like in english like words can be so superfluous and like flippant and just like totally devoid of any authority and you can kind of just like toss them off um callously yes exactly i think that is exactly correct um mm -hmm. and then there is a kind of magnitude of feeling that is completely acceptable to show in turkish that is almost um that is surprising to say the least in an english exchange and that is achieved not through that kind of declarative force, but rather the layering of many subtle and opposing feelings when you're trying to say it in English. For example, like there's a, there's, a, there's a confluence of emotions that make you feel a more twisty version of the feeling when you say it in English compared to the Turkish. Like when my mother, my mother does not speak in any any way other than a normal Turk speaks. Um, and I don't really believe that I do either. But for example, some weeks ago, I, I called her and she told me, not a single day passes in which I do not feel you in the smallest grain of me. And this is such a complicated thing to say in English. Mm -hmm. it, it is not intuitive to say it this way, although I say it, um, say things like this mm -hmm. to express myself. And yeah, that's why I wanted to have you on the pod was because, like, I don't know a lot of people that speak English in, like, very complex sentences impromptu, um, but I kind of do, and I feel like that's... Uh, I, maybe maybe it's just like that sense of gravity that persists like uh, across uh, across languages, but I think so, probably. Um, the rhythm of my English is certainly Turkish. The way that I pause, the way that I think, and the way that I deliver those sentences, the pace of it, and how those sentences are formed, I feel is informed by my way of speaking Turkish. Um, <laughs> at least it does not sound like any of the Americans that I know. Um, although I have, I have picked up certain mannerisms of speech having been here, um, <laughs> and I think I have become much more reserved in expressing myself to the people here, to people in general here, um, and my feelings, and have resorted to waiting 
a great deal for them to reveal some feeling that I will understand and be able to honestly respond to instead of simply telling. I tell a lot. Like, I, I say something. Um, and that, even to my closest closest friends here, or closest friend, sometimes is disorienting at best. I think um, there's like a little bit of noise coming. I think it's from your end, like just like something like hmm. moving around or like scraping or. I'm not moving like, at all. I don't really like, hear. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't even know how to characterize this sound, but it's like like a low kind of, uh, and it only intermittently comes up. I don't know. I think it's on your end, but hmm. it, I mean, it's not the end of the world. I, ju I just feel like it's like something moving on the desk or maybe it's like in the room next door. It, it's not a big deal, um, but yeah. It may be in the parking lot downstairs. Outside. Wait, I got it just there. There's like a, I don't know what it is. It might be, are you holding the microphone in your hand or? I am. Okay, yeah, it's definitely something to do with the microphone. So maybe if. How's this? Maybe if you set it down. Oh, great, perfect. Okay, yeah, yeah, good. that solves it. All right. Okay. Yeah, I don't think it's a big deal. I mean, it's been going on for like twenty minutes or so. Okay. But I feel like no, but it's just been such a good conversation. I didn't want to interrupt, and I figure like my <laughs> audience will be able well there are mixed feelings about stuff like that. Like some people, like people have been like so candid to me, like, um, and so blunt in like critiquing the audio quality of the podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like they don't really, uh, I never heard anything critical about the content really, other than like people saying it's too long, which is kind of, uh, I don't know. That's like a, a creative decision I would stand by, but like, um like the audio quality people will just be like oh i had to stop listening after two minutes because the sound of you eating popcorn was like it ruined the whole thing for me i couldn't bear it or like <laughs> or like oh it's way too quiet i can't hear it on my iphone like people are just like savage yeah it sounds like it that's one that's <laughs> one thing um i mean i i've never really felt like people were hurting my feelings back home uh-huh when they like people are are, are uh, direct but i never feel felt like hurt when they said things to me that were true whereas here i feel like when people are like trying to be blunt they're really not doing it in a way that at least i understand to be kind in in mm -hmm. essence like they're just sort of saying it when they could say it differently or not say it and uh -huh. <laughs> um, that's one thing that I'm not sure that I love, especially when I was in New York. I was constantly surprised by the way that, they, that the people were um, expressing themselves. Yeah, I mean, as far as like uh, people uh, critiquing the audio on my podcast, <laughs> I feel like that's like all constructive, right? Like, it, it's definitely like... Um, more actionable and it's something that i can actually like take constructively with less effort than like critiquing the content you know like i like having long episodes i feel like two hours is like a good like mean for me um <laughs> and um 
and so I'm not liable to like respond to criticism that way. But if it's something as simple as audio quality, like get rid of like this ambient noise, like that's actually like really easy to act on and to make constructive. And so that's true. And it's also like something that's like a total total oversight on my part and not like a creative decision. So likewise, I um I I feel like uh. The rest of the episode might want to talk about the freedom thing, uh, the freedom essay. Hmm. Also, I feel like uh, I don't normally do this, but I feel like just uh, because of the rapport that we have, I might as well um, give you the opportunity if you wanted to ask me anything. I'd love that. Uh, great. What's, uh, what's on your mind? Hmm. I guess I should officially announce we're back uh from intermission i don't know if i'll use i don't know if i'll use that or not you know i I kind of like figure out everything in in post-production but Hmm. well it is difficult to immediately pose you the question that is most interesting to me because you i feel frame very similar topics in an entirely different light but what Mm -hmm. i could say is that I've been thinking about Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. Mm-hmm. I never finished the film. I tried mm-hmm. to, and yet in your absence it was unwatchable to me. And it feels really? like... Yes. <laughs> um, it felt superfluous, in a way. Like, he, I had already seen, just by virtue of being around you and seeing it with you, what was to be seen. And I... Yet, I feel if I came back to you now and you watched the last two chapters, it would not feel superfluous at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, be my guest. That's, uh, like I said, it's one of my favorites. Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know how it's going to end on some level, right? So maybe that's uh, <laughs> that's why it may feel that way. But No. What I... I'm curious how you view death how you present Um, it to yourself i think the only thing that makes it not an unequivocal evil is even like the possibility of like a supernatural extension because i think that non-being is the force of evil and so death is really the loss of like one uh particular form of being and you know i think in the natural order of things for all we know that is the only one i think it's a matter of like uh religious and mystical and kind of a supernatural belief that uh it's actually a transition to or yielding to a much more um radical and sustainable and fully realized form of being um if not for that i think it would just be the worst fucking thing ever are good and evil things that exist entirely within nature well good exists because good is existence itself Uh, like to exist in the world and to have qualities is in some sense to be good and evil is real but i think that it's not it doesn't it's not really a distinct like positive quality in itself it's a lack of uh 
a quality that ought to be there. It's uh, pure privation. It's a purely negative entity in this, like, in the sense that it doesn't really posit anything. And so, things within this world can be evil, but only insofar as they leverage qualities which are good, um, which are fully realized and embodied and exist, and use them towards destructive ends, which are ultimately unsustainable and contrary to, like, the highest and most lasting forms of good. But I think that they are absolute quantities in the world. I think that they are very much real. Do you feel that animals do this? They take something that is essentially generative and lifely and toward turn it towards the destruction of something else that is so... And in the I don't sense, really are evil. think... Hmm. I mean, I don't really think of animals as ethical creatures. Um, you know, I was just reading a really terrific essay earlier today. Um, it's uh, by Sam Chris, and it was published in The Lamp. And what's the name of it? Um, I guess I should get my magazine or something so that I can give him credit. But <laughs> Nature is Healing. Um, and, you know, it is kind of serendipitous in that, uh, I was with a friend last night and I told him I like calamari and he said, how could you eat an octopus? They're such intelligent creatures. Um, you know, that's like eating a baby. That's how he conceives of it. And I don't know. I kind of dismissed it at the time, but I feel like Sam Chris, uh, debunks him immediately, like, uh, in the very first, like, couple of paragraphs of that essay. And this isn't even the point of the essay. Like, he's really just, uh, using this to make a much deeper point. Um, but he says, like, well, yes, octopuses are very intelligent in a very, like, strange foreign way. First of all, they're the only, um, like, really intelligent animal that stays alone. And then most of the time when two octopuses meet in the wild, often for the purpose of mating, uh, it ends with one of them eating the other. Sexual cannibalism is, like, uh, extreme. Within the octopus community, it's an extreme problem. And um, so he figures, well, you know, who better to judge whether the octopus can be eaten than the octopus himself? And who are who are we to uh, disagree? What is the <laughs> the deeper point that he is making? Oh well, it goes. That's just uh, by way of introduction, and he kind of talks about um, different like animal infestations that happen, and n like neural nets and um, artificial intelligence, and like artificially generated like literature, and provides some examples of like. Uh, excerpts from a novel he was trying to write with a neural net that had like a brilliant satiric wit just by kind of the things that it got wrong in some sense and then there was an upgrade to the neural net and it became a lot less um effective and it well it became better in some sense at replicating our like hollow dead like 21st century language and so it was worse at doing satire as it became a more advanced ai mm -hmm. 
But to uh, to answer your question, okay, I'll uh, read the paragraph that got me thinking about this in uh, the context of your question about the animals, where he says, um, Nobody mourns an octopus when it's gone. If these beautiful philosophical creatures believe that it's okay to eat octopuses, who are we to disagree? Finally, I said, this attitude on the part of the octopuses shows up our own ideals for what they are, limited, human, even parochial. For the octopus, death is not some terrible evil to be scrubbed out at all costs. It's simply the price of being alive. They embrace it. Ask the salmon swimming upstream. Ask the mayflies. Only humans have this neurosis about killing and eating and being killed, and only humans seem to wipe out every other species they encounter. Maybe I suggested these two facts are linked. Um, interesting take. I mean, I think that uh, my takeaway from all of this data is that, like, the animal kingdom is just, like, not... Like, animals are not ethical agents. Like, because they can't really be beholden to an ethical standard, um, as we would understand it, then they are also not protected under one. I'm not sure that I feel like I really agree with the the letter or the sentiment of what he says there. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't be certain if a lion did not have the means to, it would not be as averse, as like actively averse to dying as a human being would be. I feel like there's a lot of people ascribe nobility to animals, um, to the decisions that animals make when they may not really be doing it with, with greater innocence or purity or even be absolved of this kind of looking at things that we impose on ourselves. Like I would be inclined to say that the octopus eating its mate is still pretty morbid and that's why i really ask if i'm i'm curious why these things good and evil are supposed to be unique judgments of people mm-hmm. um so you're saying that like the oct like uh sexual cannibalism among octopus is uh not like anomalous i don't wake up thinking that octopuses are bad because they do this um no but i I feel like that's just the point isn't it that they're not really good or bad because they're not like ethical agents they're not like beholden to the same standards like if a person kills uh a hundred thousand people they would be like a war criminal and they would be tried for crimes against humanity at the hague but um if a hurricane does it like the hurricane you can't say that the hurricane is evil for that like it's not like ethically wrong it's just a hurricane and i feel like um because animals aren't really engaged in the moral dialectic they're not really uh i mean any like value judgment about an octopus eating its mate or about dolphins like being like prolific rapists or any other like act by an animal which is like uh mortifying by our standards is really outside of like the ethical 
uh, discourse. At least the normative ethical discourse. Well, I suppose I don't immediately see why that should be. I don't think that... By that question, I'm not really saying that we should start judging them by any of our own moral standards, but it is not immediately clear to me why humans are so distinct. I mean, I just think they self-evidently, like, descriptively are, um, you know, I, I, rem I think G.K. Chesterton says something to the effect in The Everlasting Man. He says, like, uh, it's not as though, like, our, like, pre-human ancestors were, like, creating bad paint cave paintings, and then they started creating good ones. It's like there's, like, a flicker of there's like a spark of consciousness and um, ethical and creative um, agency that's either there or it's not. It's a binary quality. And, um, and so I, I just uh, kind of believe somewhat religiously, but also um, just experientially that consciousness is like a um, binary quality um it's either that switches on or it's off and um at some point in our like uh pre-homo sapien ancestors probably that switch was turned on and uh and thus we have adam and eve hmm. that seems unlikely to me that it is binary and I suppose that is what, that is the point that I am really orbiting around when I ask where it begins that we can ask of human beings to behave ethically where animals do not. Mm -hmm. It feels like a continuum much more. Well, do you believe that a pebble has consciousness? I cannot say. I mm -hmm. don't feel that it has anything to do with belief. I feel that it is a question that can likely be answered, but I do not know how to pose it in a way that I can actively work towards an answer, and I do not expect from myself that I will answer it. But it seems like there is an answer, just as there is an answer to the question, why does this tube of lipstick fall when I drop it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there is a... I don't know, one could make an argument from some kind of, like, universal consciousness that, like, everything that exists is conscious and it's a matter of degree. I don't really think it, like, holds up to scrutiny. I don't really see a lot of reason to believe in that. Um, I feel like it's and, uh, not within the realm of argument and philosophy. I feel mm -hmm. like it's the kind of thing where natural philosophers tried so hard to determine the properties of the universe for many hundreds of years, but fundamentally it became possible to when somebody proposed a system that reduced the properties of the universe to certain terms that can be manipulated in a generative way. And that is science as we know it now. And so when I ask, when I, when I sense broadly that I am on the surface of the earth somehow, 
it's much harder for me to come towards the concept of gravity than when I ask, in these terms, why does this tube of lipstick fall? And if I could reduce the question of consciousness to a question that is so clear as why does this tube of lipstick fall, if I could find the analogue of that, or if anyone could, then I think there would be much more progress in answering such questions as where does it begin and what is it, um, and in a way that might even fit within the system that we have, the, the, the many systems that exist in harmony that we see as the scientific truth, which I feel is as close to the truth as of many of the things around us as um, at least I can get. Mm-hmm. You raise a good point in that uh, I guess it is really hard to observe some like another entity external to oneself empirically and to conclude whether or not it has an interior epistemic state. And this also applies to like other people as well, uh, which is why we have like the problem of other minds, mm-hmm. um, which I haven't looked into that much. But I suppose that uh, I'm really not well equipped to uh, go any further than I have in terms of assessing like the uh, degrees of consciousness or lack thereof that uh, animals may possess. Nonetheless, regardless of their consciousness, I just, uh, well, you know, they certainly have, like, standards of descriptive ethics and that there are, like, norms and behaviors which are um, understood and punished within their societies, if you could call them that. But, um... Yes. I don't think that they really have, like, normative ethics in the sense that or if they do, then, and they're totally unintelligible to us and unable to posit them, then it's kind of a non-entity insofar as our ethical treatment of them is concerned. Because, um, you know, the uh, like a human couldn't really like uh, posit its like a, a ethical framework to a grizzly bear that's about to maul him to death. Certainly. But um, neither could he nor, to a person who's about to maul right. him to death. Right. So, so that's why I say that, like, animals are... I feel fairly confident in saying that they are exempt from our moral calculation. If there's, like, another sphere in which they exercise ethics um, among themselves, that's, uh, you know, I'm willing to... Tr- make it you know i'm willing to give them the same courtesy and say that well then our uh, ethical standards are just unintelligible to one another and neither is beholden to the others right and um that's true in the minor it, the minor aspects of it though the ethical standards of society human societies diverge as well mm-hmm. and can be unintelligible to one another or at least unintuitive mm-hmm. but intelligible yeah, but we still are like participating in a dialectic together in some sense. In that, insofar as like uh, certain barriers to communication have been resolved, then we are able to deliberate on these things and to participate in a collective process of deductive reasoning, where um, 
you know, and participate in like, uh, you know, different dialectics of ethics and, you know, try, uh, to try to synthesize different perspectives and, um, reach a conclusion that is not only a matter of consensus, but that is like absolutely true. Um, so because we're able to do that, I think that notwithstanding the fact that people will have come to different conclusions on account of like certain epistemic handicaps, we can still participate in the dialectic with each other and we can't even really participate in that dialectic with our closest non-homo sapien um, relatives. I agree with you completely on that. Um, mm -hmm. I suppose my point was more that I hesitate to posit that there is an absolute ethical standard in terms of how I view it intellectually, although I have a strong feeling towards like an an un, unwavering good. I have had this feeling, but it is hard for me to to see, simply using reasoning, why that would be so. Yeah. Um, for one thing that, uh, I, to be somewhat critical of the article, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think that um, Chris is definitely being very anthropocentric when he says that humans are the only species that uh, wipes out like entire uh, species and consistently like destroys the earth the way that it does, right? Because like there have been many occasions on a in like um, deep history where like one species thrived and became so ubiquitous that it nearly caused a total extinction of life on earth. The first of which that I'm aware of is like penis worms. Uh, as far as I know, like very simple organisms that just, um, because of like some byproduct of like their burrowing and like their feeding habits, uh, they like, just like really fucked up the atmosphere. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that was, uh, that's considered likely um, cause of like snowball earth, like when the earth was just like literally like covered from pole to pole in ice, hmm. um, which I think is somewhat speculative. Like that's just one model for uh, earth deep history. But nonetheless, like um, there's good reason to believe that like these dumb penis worms could just like come within an inch of obliterating all life on earth um so we're not that special you know it's not the best company that we keep i think also like the very first uh plant life had like a similar effect um in causing one of the like major like mass extinctions in that like uh what was it it resulted in a an immensity of nitrogen i believe in the ocean 
which created like an algae bloom and like the toxic byproducts of that algae bloom almost killed everything. Mm-hmm. So all of which is to say that it's not exactly accurate that humans and their uh, fear of death is this all annihilating force of um, destruction to the environment and to the outside world. At least not uniquely so. That also sounds right to me. Mm-hmm. But um, with all this uh, mass extinction stuff, I feel like uh, people like people have asked me, like friends have asked me, like how do you believe in God, uh, knowing like about all these mass extinctions? But to me, it actually like reifies like any religious feelings I have because because it's clear that uh the stars really had to align right for uh, a life or complex life on this planet to survive through so many obstacles at all. And it feels extremely uh, providential that we end up here the way that we do after so many close encounters after like the end Permian mass extinction. And, um, you know, we literally have like a cosmic object from, from outer space like strike us and then ostensibly end the age of reptiles although not really because we have birds but um (laughs) it's just um i don't know i find it to be like actually like very spiritual to like reflect on like the immensity of destruction the um you know entire like categories of life which have been wiped off the earth by these like crazy circumstances and like these eons of um of evolution experience and um just like development which leads us to this point now it all feels very teleological to me Mm. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I I suppose what my mind generates when I hear that is is just subsidiary questioning that has to do with your model of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem like tedious questions because mm-hmm. there is stuff that people have been asking in a kind of God-defeating spirit for a long Mm -hmm. time and I'm not necessarily really curious to hear the answers because it feels like to me your faith is more interesting in spirit and in its um, effect on you and the things that you say and as faith in itself than it is as like something that should be justified or that somehow describes a truth that I should either oppose because it is untrue or subscribe to because it is true. Oh, I don't know if I agree with that. Like, I, I'm, like, pretty against, like, uh, spiritual subjectivity. And uh, I don't know. I definitely do think that, like, uh, spiritual claims are, like, theses that should be evaluated and subjected to the principle of sufficient reason and, um, and like, posited in earnest as a theory of the world rather than as like a kind of like individual experience maybe so and that would that is in itself interesting independently interesting 
but mm-hmm. I feel that just because like it, it only matters if it's true if it's not true to hell with it like I mean it's true in a different way um, at least true correspondent to my truth uh, in the dimension that I have just described and it's truth <laughs> in terms of like is there a god right now like I would just flat out say no mm-hmm. and that's like it, it feels like that is so overwhelmingly apparent that i can only really interact with it as a description of certain other things that i feel that do not fall within um mm-hmm. completely within the realm of the christian god and yet mm-hmm incorporate so much of the mythology of it and those more essential aspects of the truth of it that I feel that it is unnecessary to debate whether or not that humanoid view of God is so when there are so many more salient and interesting things to be found in the correspondence between my experience and your experience, those subjective experiences. In that correspondence, I feel I find God in a much more, um, in a way, uh, practically relevant way than if I saw it as a theological question or an alternative to different ways of formulating the truth of the world as it is, also in its physical mm-hmm. sense. I am, uh, I'm just, like, very committed to absolutism in many ways, and, um, a- and... I just think like, well, God either exists or he doesn't. Um, I'm definitely willing to entertain both. Um, although I think properly understood, I do kind of take a God figure as like a kind of like first principle of logic or as like a kind of like foundational point. But um, nonetheless, like, I don't know. I think that like a lot of like, kind of more subjective interpretations of truth are kind of imprecise in the sense that they tend to conflate like two different theses but i do believe that i don't know like all things it either is or it isn't so i'd rather say the subjective interpretations of the truth are aspects of the truth the capital t aspects Mm -hmm. that i can't entertain all at once being only mm-hmm. myself and can only really sense in that larger way when I open up the aperture that is me opens up to accommodate the lives and so the senses of more than one and that is not a state that I am in always and so asking matching up this language and simply approaching the other's truth with my eyes open is the best that I can do in my waking life, in which I am mostly only me. Mm-hmm. I think I somewhat follow. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move on to freedom. We have. I'll I'll, re- I'll read this one since it'll uh, help me process the meaning a little bit better. I think. I was going to say that we have four minutes until the two hour. Oh, yeah, and uh, it'll be a little bit shorter in the final cut. Well, then again, it might be longer because I also add in, like, uh, music and 
uh, sound effects and stuff. But I feel like I'll, you know, I'll, I'll cut like probably about like a good like 15, 20 minutes out. So just like a uh, fluff and, you know, the, the intermission, whatever. But anyway, um, in thinking about freedom, one thinks about violence. To be given freedom is to be able to act as one pleases within communal constraints. To go where and eat what and speak to whom one desires, provided these things do not violate the unifying boundaries that each community contractually creates. Unless one is in an unusual society of no regulation or entirely alone, his idea of freedom will be limited by legal and moral perceptions. If there is something beyond this primary framework that restricts him from acting as he wishes, this becomes a violation of his will, which we perceive as a loss of freedom. The most practical of these violations concerns one time. To live in our industrial society is necessary to contribute to the system by which people grow old and die. The common path of birth, education, consumption, illness, and death must progress with the help of others, such as doctors, teachers, creditors, engineers, and undertakers. Each person is made to buy their time of leisure, called free time, in the recognition that the rest of one's life is spent on the system's health. If one does not support the system through productive work, he is deprived of the freedom to eat, rest, and be healthy, because all of these, even though they are fundamental needs and not free choices, are obtained using the system's currency, which is money. For the unemployed on government aid, there are violations in addition to those pertaining to their time as such, which restrict what they can do in that time. Agreements to remain within a country's borders and to permit searches of one's home violate one's mobility and privacy. Therefore, all people living in our model of society experience some loss of freedom, although the degree depends on social privilege and education, as the more educated are likely to earn more and so attain control over their time and movement sooner, as well as to earn money in professions of their choice so that they enjoy the process of earning money and consequently do not feel that their time is wasted. It nevertheless seems that such communities deprive people of a more freedom than is implied by a social contract, and that this loss is difficult to remedy through means other than a higher education, revolution, or abandonment of society. I'll uh, stop there for the time being, but I feel like I would uh, probably follow this idea along the parallel lines. I've become... I, I'm not like a... I, I, I don't really deny... Uh, the existence of freedom as like a meaningful entity in the world but i think that it's unhelpful to view it as americans often do almost universally really in our political and ethical tradition as an absolute quantity um and i think Like, the, I, I would even hesitate to say that any one society is more or less free than another. I think in some sense, like, we're really talking about, like, uh, privileging, like, freedoms for certain people and at the expense of others and certain freedoms in particular, but they're all intention. And um, it can be misleading to view it as an absolute quantity. Is that something that you're kind of getting at here? I think I'm just setting up a framework for... A further argument I feel like where I'm what I'm feeling when I say these things and what I feel when I read them is that I'm stating facts and it feels pretty lukewarm to me 
when I read it, like... Oh, I mean, I feel like this should be, like, somewhat self-evident, but, like, the problem is, like, I think, like, American discord... I hate to keep bitching about Americans, because, <laughs> you know, I like it here. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not anti-American or anything. It's just, like, our, like, entire, like, discursive mode is, like, dominated by, like, the heritage of liberalism, which I think does treat freedom as, like, an absolute quantity, like, in the sense that, like... Well, you know, when the government doesn't do stuff, you're free. Like, I think it's really that shallow in a lot of cases. And, um, and I think that most of the world and, like, the political traditions of the world, like, understand this intuitively. But, like, I don't know. When I tell this to, like, Americans, like, um especially of, like, an older generation, like, it's either, like, it blows their mind, or <laughs> they can't really engage with it. I think there's a certain parochialism that sets in in our approach to the, the F word. Um, and so I feel like it's worth reiterating exactly what you're saying here. I think exactly what I'm saying here is what I'm saying is that there is that freedom is doing along one's will within the basic constraints of society by which I mean if the social contract that I'm referencing here for example is like in its most sparse uh, form against killing other people, then I can't just go ahead and claim that it is within my freedom to kill other people unless, as I am talking about in like the end of the second paragraph, um, I, I have revolution and create a new society in which that is fine, or I abandon society and then I am I'm outside it, and therefore it is within the set of behaviors that I can engage in to kill others. Or, what else did I say? Or... Higher education. Okay, that, so that is within society. Um, but that's referencing something other than killing people. And so... Mm -hmm. That's why I said that it's very lukewarm, because it's it feels obvious. Like, I'm just defining terms, and the real point comes later. Um, as to uh, one's internal freedom. So I speak about being aware of things like fear, indifference, vulnerability, and risk. And then once those the objectives along which one plans their life are recognized, one may choose between seeking their aspects in society, the aspects of those objectives, um, or addressing what happens in oneself as to why one will not want to achieve those objectives. So it's, it's, it becomes pretty involved after this initial, um, this initial setup because it begins to reference things that happen in the self. 
All right, well, let's uh, let's talk about that. But uh, first, if you'll uh, forgive me if I may uh, get on my soapbox for a minute as well. I I am like a total non-believer in like any like social contract framing of like the state and like society. I just think like it's a really misleading and ineffective model to like believe there's any like kind of like consent driven like mechanism behind like the exercise of power through the state and through um like society in general and it's like coercive constraints i really think that that it's just um it doesn't really derive from like a kind of agreements among people it i think it really is rooted in like the pure exercise of power and um one thing that this makes me wonder is to what extent like uh freedom as we understand it or as it would be properly understood is totally inseparable from and almost synonymous with like power in the abstract um well i think when i'm referencing this contract i'm not necessarily i'm i'm pretty clear that you are not necessarily signing it so to speak voluntarily um you could always just leave it though like in that sense it is contractual even if the deal that you're being given is pretty bad you you can stop it's just that you probably I mean you can't wouldn't. really opt out of society altogether uh Taolin notwithstanding like um you could you could kill yourself <laughs> you could go I suppose. off and live in the wilderness but that's the thing like there are consequences Certainly. to it right and like the like I feel like the state like very seldom like restricts action outright in like the most absolute sense of like literally like forcing your hand and restricting the action. What we mean when we say that for the most part is that they create a system where there are consequences for pursuing certain actions. So like the existence of those consequences is like uh coercion. Like that is like power outright there are always consequences like i don't believe that freedom is the the absence of consequence when you do something if i were to describe it now i would say that it is recognition of those consequences and of the will inside yourself to do it anyway and then to be able Mm. the ability inside oneself to do it boldly to do it as it comes from oneself and I think that's a very different framing then and uh well maybe we should uh just continue with the uh essay so that we can really get to the heart of your argument okay um would you uh would you care to take it from here yes um apart from all these external freedoms and inner quality without which the ability to act as one pleases has no importance because what one pleases is not known To be aware of one's desire requires that one is aware of fear, indifference, vulnerability, and risk, a process often foregone in favor of substitute desires, fame, wealth, and sophistication, placeholders for the more fundamental need to be loved, admired, and free. Once these objectives are recognized, one may choose between seeking their aspects in society, 
the substitute desires mentioned above, which cease to be substitutes of thus chosen, or addressing the histories behind each component of reluctance, one's history of violence. The two ends of this choice are not mutually exclusive. One would have an easier time achieving social liberation validation if, inside, he were able to look at his emotional responses and tie them neutrally to past violations of himself, times when he met indifference or was hurt, and then forced himself to be indifferent to avoid damage or humiliation. While still recognizing his depth and validity of emotion, he would attain a clarity and flexibility that would make him more productive and, from the start, more free. This is because the way we usually handle emotional experiences is to either justify or categorize them until they are presentable, ignorable, or mute, which simply destroys a great deal of data regarding our abilities, our responses of fear. The more one watches these experiences with neutrality, honestly, gently, and carefully, the more familiar one is with oneself, and therefore the less likely to cling to any one doctrine, habit, or lifestyle, which narrows one's ability to experience. Even in the time that we buy, most of us fit into comfortable grooves in which there is no light or change. To be uncomfortable in transformation and squint into the sun makes us aware that we exist, and are able to grow and be molded as a liquid, primitive, wonderful thing, which listens to everything it is and was, and will be, and is therefore as natural as life permits. This brings neutrality and openness towards others, focusing more on beauty than separation, and so makes one pliant and not brittle, not easy to hurt or break, but instead able to care for oneself, free of other life, free to change, without internal restrictions. There is fear, but it is known. I fear to change, but I will know. This flexibility enables our acts of love, to ignore oneself as violence. And there is a final paragraph, which goes, to prevent people from following the direction of their desire, to express themselves, to experience the unfamiliar, to reinvent a self, is a violence to space, the space in which one grows and understands the world around him, the space in which all is processed, transformed, observed, and known. This restriction, often made in, name, in the name of protection of the subject, or of moral concerns, or a certain order, or one's own sensibilities, is the most insidious of all. It is usually accompanied by some crippling threat, either emotional, like abandonment or abuse, or practical, like disownment or loss of security. It is perpetrated almost exclusively by close acquaintances. The one way to combat it is to know. Knowledge of the self that exists, and the self as it will continue to exist, as it will change and become again unknown, frees people from accusing certain parts of themselves of being unwise or inopportune. Once it is known that one will change, and that one will one in some way resists change or touch or solitude, through an experience or a fear, one is together with everything inside him, and so can begin to look outside as whole and incomplete, seeking that which makes him feel and think. Just as knowledge in the system frees us partly from our dependence on money, our knowledge of self lightens self-blame, and allows us to exist as fully as possible until we save our space from violence. So, um, I, I think at this point we've shifted pretty significantly from 
like speaking about like freedom in like a broad like social sense to really as like a kind of like personal phenomenological experience within the individual it seems so um so am i correct in characterizing your argument here as that um that the absence of freedom is to be restricted in from pursuing desire or yes i think that's what i'm getting at mm -hmm. i would probably dispute that characterization just because i think that pursuing desire can be um antithetical to freedom in like a, a broader sense um in fact i think it usually is like unmitigated like uh and un like i think that conflict is uh liberating and that to live in conflict um to live with um someone else whether that be like an external entity or like the cop that lives in your head like uh giving kind of like moral commands uh, as informed by society or by like some kind of uh, ethical framework um, to live without that is actually like very destructive to freedom because we tend to lapse into habits of familiarity and apathy and sloth which um, I really don't think could properly be understood as like truly free i see what you are saying but i still stand behind what i said there that i think when i say desire i really fundamentally mean something that comes directly from the self and if not done f feels actively harmful to my or someone's being themselves like how do you quantify harm or define harm like what is uh, the measure some kind of, of acute pain and mm -hmm. the loss of something that would be beneficial mm -hmm. in lack of access loss of access to something that would have been beneficial okay well I think the the former is very specific. The latter, um, then that kind of uh, raises the question of what, how you would define beneficial, because my intuition, my my understanding of it would be that harm is like definitionally like a lack of something beneficial, and so that kind of leaves us with a tautology on the second point. Um, if I were to, I mean, the only way that I could really explain what I mean would be through, like, an obvious example in my own life where, for example, if you and I were walking on the street and you were, like, somehow deeply opposed to us interacting with people outside of our trajectory, or if you had planned a very strict and stiff trajectory back to St. Mark's Place and wouldn't like tolerate any divergence or would be annoyed with it in a way that would 
drive you to no longer interact with me. That would feel like a violation of who I was, because fundamentally I am very much fed and supported by my ability to follow certain divergences from what is an obvious and austere path towards some thing. Mm -hmm. I enjoy and exist with respect to these spontaneous interactions that come directly from the heart of me that feel essential to I me. I think I'm of a similar temperament. I think that, uh, I mean, to somewhat dispute like the former point, I just think that, um, in terms of pain, you said that, uh, harm is like measured in pain where, well, I'm, uh, coming out on the beautiful toilet episode eight as pro pain. I'm in favor of pain. I think that it's, uh, generally good. Um, kind of intrinsically so even, um, and so, I mean, I characterize myself according to an ethic of, like, openness to experience, pleasant and unpleasant. And, like, I kind of, like, understand, like, pleasure to be, like, the good that you seek out, that you actively want, and pain and suffering to be the good that you don't seek out, that you don't want, but that is nonetheless uh, imposed upon you. I can agree. But, um, I can agree with this, but mm-hmm. there is suffering that is wasteful. I mean, one cannot say that mm-hmm. all all pain is beneficial. There is. I mean, I don't think it's extrinsically beneficial. I think, well, maybe somewhat, but I think that it is just like, because it is like a positively embodied like state of being because it has qualities and you can point to it and say that's what pain feels like that makes it intrinsically good because it possesses uh existence and it possesses qualities whereas i actually think that that's distinct from and actually um very different from like depression for example which is actually like really just like a great emptiness Um, I can't agree with this. I feel that there is certainly wasteful pain. Like when I... Mm -hmm. When somebody gets cancer and they live their life life in... What remains of their life in acute pain. It's... That is... So much more preventative of the other experiences that they could have that would be good and beneficial and opening to experience. It would... It is not certain physical pain. Right. It's so not that, like then it's... emotional pain. And even there is emotional pain that is wasteful and that simply closes up one's mouth to things that would be beneficially hurtful. Well, then it's just a matter of privation, right? Then there are two... I, I would think that in the same model, like, there are two things. They're both good, but if they're good to different degrees, then the one that it, like allows for less good and less actualization is more privated and therefore is relatively like worse. Probably. And so, so, so then cancer, you know, in your example, would be bad because it um, precludes the possibility of like a, a greater depth of experience, a greater quantity of qualities reasonably so like when i when you say it that way i agree completely but i also have uh, a great aversion towards 
physical pain as something that is deserved or good in any in any um, capacity. I feel like a lot of physical mm-hmm. pain is simply bad um, mm-hmm. because it is a battering of the body and bringing of it closer to death. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think that pain intrinsically is. I think it tends to accompany those things. But... Well, I didn't say that pain intrinsically is bad. Uh-huh. Wait, why? Um, well, I'm not saying that it is good intrinsically either, but I feel that although, yes, pain can do many good things, that physical pain overall I must categorize as bad because mm-hmm. it is a destruction of the body, which I feel the existence of is a good Wait, but why is it a destruction of the body? Well, it usually occurs in the body because something's going wrong. Right, right. So that, but then it's not intrinsically like destroying the body itself. It's like there is like correlation, but that's I don't think that's really causal. Like it tends to accompany like destruction of the body, right? But like that doesn't mean that pain itself is like the catalyst for that. Certainly not. But I even because it is associated with that destruction. I'm not going to go out and say that all pain is good simply because it is an aspect of feeling and of experience, Mm -hmm. and simply because it precludes certain even better experiences is as bad. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I don't know, I mean, I, I think of it as like the silver lining to like destruction of the body, which is evil, and like, because you lose something distinctly if your body is destroyed and the only thing you get out of it like the only positive quality is that it's endowed with like this immensity of experience this overwhelming like uh like power which you can't like which you can only submit to have you which you been gravely physically injured before um no but i think i'm making an a priori argument so i think the experience of it makes it like it is so evident that it is not good the experience of physical pain once you feel it 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 is eclipsing this is why i started in the very beginning by saying that like the experience like doesn't impose like a normative like a standard to accompany it like it only tells you that you experience the thing that you experience but it doesn't really like intrinsically give you a value judgment about that i think that to claim so would be like a non sequitur Hmm. i think my model of the world is in this sense much more tied to the physical world and what happens in it if something feels good I am more inclined to investigate the set of possibilities in which it is good. Mm -hmm. And by feeling good, there is... I don't necessarily mean just it being pleasurable. And I think physical pain is beyond displeasure. It is so violent and so... um, it, it shakes something in you. Mm-hmm. And then it's forgotten, thankfully. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, the 
the good is kind of intrinsically violent in the world or it um i think that in order to have teeth the good um has like a certain willingness to like break some eggs you know to make an omelet as they say um and and so i think that to be confronted with the force of good truth and beauty in the world i think is an incredibly violent experience i agree and it and so it is pain bringing that mm-hmm. confrontation is pain bringing yes mm-hmm. but i don't know i do think of like pleasure and suffering in like very symmetrical terms in that not only are both like kind of intrinsically but really extrinsically good because they just point you to like higher forms of being you know i think in heaven like those terms would be obsolete but um they also like uh they have one thing in common which is that like in an overwhelming like a kind of um sequence of one or the other with little variation they really uh desensitize one to the positive qualities of that and uh i think that an overwhelming like a uh, sequence of pleasure or suffering almost always leaves one feeling empty and hollow and really like uh le- like with a less fully realized experience of life and so i think that's where they become evil but i think intrinsically because they are possessed of positive qualities that both must be good by definition I see the logical framework that you set up. So, that's uh I don't really have anything to add to that, but <laughs> Yeah. Neither do I really. Cool. Well, uh do you have any final words for uh for the audience of the beautiful toilet? You can uh plug your writing or music or whatever <laughs> you prefer. If you want to reach my audience of like 10 people. <laughs> sure. Um Hi mom. <laughs> I well there is an album of music that I made when I was suffering very much and which is called Bliss. And so thematically it is appropriate to our conversation and is mm-hmm. Um you can find it on Spotify. It is like 8 minutes long in total. And the artist's name is Lansby, L-A-N-D-S-B-Y. If you'd like to hear more of me, that is there. Very well. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's been my pleasure.